Hello, and welcome to the Wild Work Podcast. And this series of podcasts accompanies our Wild Workers at Home video series on YouTube, the link to which will be in the podcast description. Today, we're discussing episode two on pesticides in the garden and how we avoid using them. Joining me are William from Wildwork. Hi, Karen. And our special guests are Wildwork placement students, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, yeah. And Kinga. Hi, Kinga. Hi, Karen. How are you? We've invited Rachel and Kinga not only because we love talking to them, but also their studies have relevance to the topic. So I just wanted you guys to introduce yourself a little bit more, um, your studies and how it relates to the topic. So Kinga, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so I study environmental science and quite a lot of the work I've done last year actually looked at the effect of agriculture, so the use of pesticides and fertilizers on ecosystem health and human health. So in this episode, I will be talking more about the kind of chemistry behind pesticides and their effect on pollution and ecosystem and human health. That's great. Thank you. Looking forward to it. And Rachel, your studies are a little bit more, well, with the work you're doing with us is towards climate change. Could you tell us a little bit how pesticides would fit into that? Yeah, exactly. So what I'm looking at is climate change and how we can manage our gardens to positively impact that. So really, we're looking at how climate change affects your garden and how your garden affects climate change. So pesticides come into that because they're a chemical that you're using. So they have a carbon footprint. They have a effect on vegetation, which again has effect on climate. So it's all inter interlinked, really. Great. Fascinating. Thank you so much. So I think one of the things we need to do first off is maybe just give some definitions of what we are talking about when we talk about pesticides. So, Will, do you want to have a chat about that? Yeah, so I remember a few years ago, I would go places and I would hear people give a talk about saving bees or something like that, and they're talking about pesticides and herbicides and insecticides and fungicides, and I was like, this side of what? Didn't really necessarily understand what they were talking about. And what I came to understand anyway when I asked the question and looked into it is that when we say pesticide, that's like an umbrella term for all the sides out there under the pesticide umbrella the thing that people probably uh, most commonly use in their garden is uh, might be herbicide so that's something for killing herbs or grasses or flowers and there are different types of herbicide perhaps the best known type would, that people refer to is roundup and that's kind of a catch-all herbicide if you spray it on vegetation it will kill all the vegetation there then you also have uh, selective herbicides which if you wanted to kill just a particular plant that's growing within a system like a field, like docks or thistles, you can get a herbicide specific just for that. So herbicides are for herbs. Then you have insecticides. So if there are insects that you don't want in your, around your home, like maybe there's flies coming in through the window in the summer and you, want it, you don't want them there. And if you buy something in the shop to kill the flies, that's going to be an insecticide. And then other things, the other perhaps most common one I think would be fungicide so if you have a disease that comes onto a plant something like um potato blight that's a fungus uh, that attacks a potato plant so you use a special chemical treatment to kill the blight and that is a fungicide yeah, and then your potatoes don't get fungus so they're the main categories as i uh, see them you have fungicide insecticide and herbicide there are others i think kinga might elaborate a little bit for me 
Yeah, there's also bactericides, which target bacteria. And there's also lymphocytes for larvae, which self-expandary, and rodenticides as well for rodents. So like Will has said, you, they, there's different types out there and some are more natural, some are more artificial. There's ones that you can use to kill everything out there and then there's specific ones if you have a problem with a specific species. Just to start off, I suppose we'll talk a little bit about the episode. This was right at the start of the spring. We were just starting out the gardening. We were just starting out on the series of wild workers at home. Will came up with this idea to maybe show a little bit about what we do in the garden, not using pesticides. And as I said, that was at the start of spring. So Will, how did it go for you? Did you stay away from pesticides for all of the spring and most of the summer? So there's no need to ask me that question, Karen. <laughs> Always. <laughs> but yeah, we did. And um, the, the thing, I think, looking back on the episode, that one of the things I was advocating is that, you know, I think using pesticides doesn't look very good. You get this deathly appearance on the edge of your lawn or on your flower bed or wherever it might be that you're using. Well, in this case, I'm speaking about herbicide now, or weed killer that people might commonly refer to it as. And uh, it, people use it often, I think, because they think they are supposed to or that they have to. And a lot of the time, too, uh, the way we behave in our gardens or homes or public space that we manage is that we're actually we're just keeping on top of things. We're keeping things maintained. We're not necessarily thinking about how it will turn out looks wise. And so you asked me, Karen, how did it go? I mean, we didn't use any herbicide for the year. And when I look back in the episode, was kind of going, oh, Jesus, the place doesn't, it doesn't look very nice. But look, that's the same for everywhere at the, at the beginning of spring when there hasn't really been any growth yet. Well, for anyone listening to this podcast, you should definitely take a look at episode five, uh, which is all about how, you know, everything turns out when we manage it in the wild work way. And the driveway and all the wildflower areas around it and all the places where I wasn't using herbicide, they just look stunning. And it didn't take a lot of effort. It's more about me just not using these things and not going using these chemicals in my garden. And instead, my garden will behave differently than, than the one that someone manages with chemicals. And I'm just trying to work with the garden and what it's doing. I'm, not, I'm putting in as little effort as I possibly can. And uh, if anyone saw how it turned out, they'd think, wow, that, that guy is a, an amazing gardener. And whereas the truth is, I'm not. I just I didn't use chemicals and I embraced beautiful wild flowers and weeds and so on and managed them in a certain way that they turned out well. So I'm delighted with how it went to answer your question, Karen. Yeah, great. No, I'm, I'm delighted too. No matter how bad the slugs got, um, managed to stay away from using pesticides. And you know what? Just that little bit of effort in the garden and plants weren't destroyed. You know, I thought we'd be going out every night with a torch, but it was a couple of weeks and we didn't need to anymore. So let's get into the meat of it then. Why? Why are we advocating for, for not using pesticides in the garden? As I said in the episode, um, the garden is a place where I feel I can control what goes into it. But of course, we're surrounded by agriculture and fields and we don't have any control about that. And so what is the issue with that, Kingo? Why, why are pesticides an issue? So the main problem with pesticides, I would say, is that they are very stable and persistent in the environment. 
So you might think, oh, I just used it once, what harm can it have? But in fact, the pesticide that you're using, because of its chemical properties, it binds to the soil particles and it doesn't ever biodegrade really. It can degrade in, in sunlight sometimes, but in a country like Ireland, that, that never really happens. So it stays there for a very, very long time. And because it's lipophilic, which means that it likes to bind to fatty tissues, whenever it's eaten by any macroinvertebrates or anything that eats them, it, it accumulates in the fatty tissues and it bioaccumulates over time in their bodies and then biomagnifies in the actual food chain. So the little microbes will eat the soil with the pesticide and then they'll be eaten by bigger microinvertebrates and then the birds, etc. And in the end, the levels of pesticides in their bodies will be so high that it can lead to big health effects and you know it can reduce their growth it can have an effect on the reproduction and it can also just result in their ultimate death which is very unfortunate and with you know mass pesticide use it's a big problem especially in a place like Ireland where the agricultural sector is is so big i think over 60% of the land mass in in Ireland is used for agriculture at the moment wow. so you can ima- you can imagine the effect that it's having on our ecosystems it's not a topic i know a huge amount about and you know when you think most of our agriculture it, it seems to be grass is there a lot of pesticides used on grass or is it mostly the food crops that the pesticide would be used on there's masses of herbicide used in grassland management in dairying systems um, at least, like often, at least once every year, the whole grassland system is given a run over to generally kill off all vegetation. So that grass growth then can come back again in the next year. Or they do that when they're reseeding. I'm, I'm not the best ex- person here now to explain exactly how to manage a grassland system, but I'll give an example now, right? Um, there is a field near where I live, and it was managed by a person who is non intensive farmer. So they just have cows roaming the land and grazing away and they're not managing it. It's not a very productive system in agricultural terms, shall we say. Um, but anyway, they, they let out the land to another farmer. So the first thing that they did was they came along and they applied a big dosage of herbicide to kill everything else off. So that's the first step in the grassland system is to use herbicide to kill everything else. Then they also applied fertilizers. They would have used animal manure. And they also put lime on the land and, and then they, they sowed the grass. But while the crop is establishing, there is also other like spot slip sprays that they use to control the likes of docks or thistles or anything else that emerges. So actually, yes, grasslands, there's lots of herbicide use in those just as well as in grain systems. And a lot of people are unaware of this. And it's, it's an interesting thing that it's come up in the chat here because I'm reminded I met a a friend of ours she used to be a neighbor of ours and has moved to a new house that they built and they have a they have the house built in we'll say one segment of the site and they still have other land and basically uh, it's in this is uh, in family land i think so a member of the family is still farming and uh, along they came to the area of their house where they, they haven't built anything it's just grass and the person came back to their home and everything had been sprayed and they could already see the grass starting to die. And this person was like horrified. Like they were like 
they were traumatized by this. They were they wanted to talk to me. They were worried for their health. They said they sprayed near the well. Would it be okay? Now they might have been a little bit. Um, it could have been a little bit dramatic, maybe. But genuinely, genuinely, this person was so scared and worried and horrified about what happened, and had had no idea that this is how grasslands are managed within within Ireland and other places. So absolutely, yes, herbicides and fertilizers, lots of chemicals are used in the management of grazing systems in Ireland. Yeah, I think a lot of us don't realize how grasslands are managed. And all those, those pesticides, Kingo, what, what do they do to our environment? What do they do particularly, I'm thinking, as you mentioned, Ireland is a very rainy country. What does it do to our waterways and our, our lakes and streams? So as we're all aware, Ireland gets a lot of rainfall. Um, and that means that most of the, um, the pesticides that are in the soil, they get washed into running waters and also groundwater, like Will has mentioned. So even though you might think it's just one field, you know, it will end up in all the catchments and groundwater aquifers. And this, you know, this directly affects um, freshwater biota and their habitats. And also it has an effect on the quality of the water. And in a reservoir that's used for drinking water, for example, this can directly affect our health because in drinking water treatment plants, they might necessarily check for certain pesticides that are used in agriculture. So those levels, they can get quite high. And if they're not tested and removed, we might be drinking it in the end without realizing it. So it's, it's all a big chain and it mightn't seem like a big deal when you first do it, but it can have huge effects for the whole country in the end. So um, the biggest story, I think, I mean, this was from, from ages ago. You all know uh, the, the book, The Silent Spring. It's one of my one of those ones. Have you, have you read it? Ah, look at there. <laughs> Rachel yeah. holding off her copy of The Silence, of Silent Spring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's amazing. When was, that, when was that published, Rachel? I actually wrote it down as a point because when you read it, it's so shocking. In the 60s, I think. So th this came out. It, Tell us about it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, please. Uh, for everyone who might not have, have actually read or heard about the Silent Spring. Sorry, I'm just assuming everyone has. It was one of the ones I like, you know, you talk to friends and they give you a list of really good books to read about, you know, the environment. And it was the one that everyone suggested. But I read it a while back. So I'll see if I can summarize it well. So Rachel Carson was just very concerned with the effects that pesticides were having on the environment. And she started noticing a lot of like trends. So people were noticing a lot of birds were dying, a lot of trees were dying, but no one was really taking it seriously. And that's when DDT, and maybe Kinga could give more information on that because I'm not great with the kind of chemistry background to it. It was really, really harmful. And what they were doing is they were just spraying it in masses above the ground. And a lot of the particles then were getting into the air and they were spreading around. People were getting sick, animals were getting sick. So she collected all this data and she really looked at it and she just produced this book that said DDT is toxic and it's killing the world, killing the environment, harming people. So to summarize, basically, it was like a love letter to the environment. She was like, we need to stop using these pesticides if we want to save the environment. I think the name of the book itself is very interesting. It's called The Silent Spring. And the reason why it's called that is because DDT actually causes um, bird eggs to be much weaker. Um, so the, the birds, when they had very high DDT levels, 
the eggs that they produced were so soft that they got damaged before the, the little birds hatched and it actually um, it, it actually resulted in um, in springtime being very silent because the bird pop bird populations were so low. God, it is scary reading it and it's very sad. There's parts where like someone went out to their garden and there was just hundreds of birds in their garden that had fallen out of the sky. So it's the consequences of it at the time. And they did, they changed laws and made DDT illegal. You're not allowed to use it. But as Kinga said, it remains in the environment for, I don't know how long, but very long time, depending on, mm -hmm. I presume, like, like soil conditions, weather conditions. So it had a massive impact, really, really big impact. Yeah, well, I, I did a project on dioxins, but it's actually horrifying. So they used to spray dioxins um, in Vietnam during the war. And this was like 60 years ago. And you can like people are still they have such high levels of dioxins and it's still causing like health issues to this day. And like those poor people, they weren't doing it, you know, to help their plants. It was just sprayed on them and they had it was warfare and absolute war crime. Yeah. It's just it's horrifying to me that it's been sixty years and people are still paying the price for that. Yeah. And we don't seem to have learned anything. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's really interesting about the title of Silent Spring. I did just assume it was because so many animals were dying that it was, yeah, kind of like you don't hear birds anymore. But I didn't realize it was because they were actually like affecting the density of the eggshell and then mortality. Yeah, it's quite a sad title, I think. Yeah, great book though. I highly recommend it to read like, if you want to learn more about it. At the I end, like you do kind of, you feel like she did so much, especially as a woman during the time as well. People weren't taking her seriously. And then eventually, after she passed, people started really taking interest in it, which unfortunately, that's just how it happens a lot. But she she has a legacy now that will live on. Like Because of all the work that she did, a lot of people got interested. She started basically an ecological movement and people got on board and they started really seeing the consequences. Yeah, I was actually reading a book. Uh, I don't know if you know Dave Golson. He, he, he's a bee researcher and he does a lot of wildlife gardening. And his book is a really nice one, The Garden Jungle. But what I learned from that was amazing that they do these sort of preemptive spraying in American suburbs. They just go along with these massive sprayers and they spray people's garden. I think this was particularly for, um, it was either a beetle or a moth that has come into America and they're worried about it spreading and they just go in and preemptively spray people's garden. You, you don't have a choice about it. And these were coming in, I think, because of course, warming climate. So that's maybe something you can speak a little bit about, Rachel, how climate change and pesticides are interrelated. Yeah, even just to go back to like 1960s, talking about a silent spring, that was one of the major things that preemptive spraying and fumigant pesticides or like spray pesticides are really bad for the environment because they contribute a lot of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere and that's 300 times more um, effective at global warming than carbon dioxide which I think maybe at the time it obviously wasn't considered but now it really should be because it can have a massive effect as well then with climate change we're having more difficulties and more challenges that are coming up so there's the potential for warmer climates, especially now in Ireland, warmer climates, more pests can come in, live longer, as well with growing seasons then, with longer growing seasons, 
you have the potential for pests to survive for longer, have longer effect. So really, it's it's almost I know it's a, such a big challenge because you have these pests coming in, and you want to obviously stop them, but then by using pesticides, you're causing more damage. It's like a, a roll-on effect, really, for it. Um, Kinga, I'd love to ask you the question, and um, this is not the easiest thing to find the answer to online actually or maybe i'm just not looking the right way would you be able to tell me about glyphosate and how that is made glyphosate being the product that's in roundup it's a general use herbicide one of the most oh, it's made used. yeah how is it made i actually couldn't tell you what i'm sorry <laughs> well i well, i wasn't expecting for you to be able to tell me really but i think it's almost like a secret and this now maybe it's not maybe we're just not looking in the right places but glyphosate is one of the most widely used herbicides in the whole world and we don't know how it's made typically most of us don't know how it's made and it's this wonder product you know that you you use and it kills all these things you don't want people love this stuff like it's great but we don't know how it's made and i, I just think it's a good example of how we we often think that these chemicals in our gardens are wonderful things and they're just but you know that saying like if what it's too good to be true i think that could be the case with glyphosate but then again maybe it's made in a really good energy efficient doesn't contribute to climate change sort of way that's all wonderful and includes all natural ingredients and but uh or maybe the opposite is true that it's made in a way that's actually very hard for the environment and you know, that the process of producing it is far worse than what the actual thing, uh, the product does itself when you use it, you know. But I'm only guessing. But isn't, do you guys not think that's an interesting one, that something so widely used, like glyphosate, that, uh, that people don't know how it's made? Well, I'm sure there's some important reason about how they have to protect their profit margins, that if it got out, it would, you know, everyone would be making it and then protecting their, their company's secrets. I mean, just like Coke. I'm sure there's, a, there's recipes out for Coke, but that was protected for a long time. You know, you've, got, you've got to protect it. We spoke earlier about um, how, you know, the different pesticides are and, you know, how you can have very specific pesticides and you know, herbicides and everything. But um, I just want to speak a bit about when we think we're putting something quite specific, like a, a herbicide on, but it can actually have effects on other animals. We spoke a little bit about Silent Spring and birds, and it seems the big one today is bees. Herbicides are apparently having a big effect on, on bees and bumblebees. Either King or Rachel, can you speak a little bit on that? I've read a bit about it in my undergrad. It's actually, it's really interesting because a lot of time it's not just that herbicides are straight away killing bees, like some can, but more often it's that it's a buildup of different factors that are contributing to the decline of bees. So it could be herbicides or, you know, bringing on other illnesses. It's making them more susceptible to like disease, to being parasitized. But one that I thought was really interesting was that it actually confuses bees, some of them. So then they can't find their way back or they get like, basically they just get lost and turned around. And a lot of times bees can use, um like trees or rocks something in the environment to help them find their way back to like i'm talking about social bees now and hives find their way back to the hive and they just get confused and then they can die from that 
but it's it's really interesting because it's not just a one factor thing really it's a lot of things contributing and there's a lot of work gone into it because obviously agriculture there's so much chemicals used in that and bees are a massive contributor to pollination they pollinate over 90 percent of plants so without bees our food security is really it's gone we don't have food safety without bees so it's something to really consider as well i think there's a lot more how would you say there's a lot more concern with bees now there's a lot more actions put into place and hopefully it's helping the bees i feel like like there's a lot more awareness now on the topic yeah rachel the the herbicide it, i think what you're reading about there might may actually be uh, an insecticide that's causing insecticide that yeah yeah and in a particular group called the neonicotinoids and yep. we we had been at a talk uh by there was a professor jane stout in trinity and she's one of the top experts in ireland on all things bees and she gave a talk to local authorities um down in cork and we went along to it and she, so this was only about 12 months ago and she was speaking about all the most up-to-date research uh, on uh, insecticides. And, you know, I know with, with wild work, we're always advocating, the, trying to tell the positive side of the story about things, you know, that's not all doom and gloom about nature and the environment, certainly not. But in this case, if you went to this talk and you heard what the, what the science is saying around insecticides and other pesticides for bees and then other species in the environment, you wouldn't come away feeling too happy with yourself, I'll put it that way. Um, but that was certainly one of the things about the neonicotinoids that they had concern about, that it might not be that it was actually killing them directly, it was more the indirect, how it was impacting their behaviour, and then they were dying. And, and, the, and on the herbicide with the bees, there another number of years ago, like this was about five years ago, there was another talk going around and I can't remember now who was giving this, but it was a training course for good community groups. And the person delivering this speak, uh, talk was uh, saying how uh, glyphosate was safe for bees, that you could use it away. And what actually happened was there was some survey done, and I can't cite it now, but it, it basically said that the glyphosate itself didn't kill bees. Yeah, so if, if got into contact with the chemical that the glyphosate was meant to be safe for bees. Um, but what they weren't saying is that when you're using glyphosate, all the habitat which bees depend on for their survival, whether that's to be able to nest within, like bumblebees need long grassy areas to create nests, or whether it's particularly to forage on, so all the vegetation that they're killing with the herbicide that the bees depend on for food through the flowers, if you're killing all that, that's indirectly killing bees. So even though the glyphosate itself in this case may not have been killing the bees directly, the indirect impact of it is, uh, it's very, it's bad for them. Like, So um, it's, a, it's a very interesting area and bees, Karen, like it's been going on. They've been one of the most trendy spoken about conservation topics in community settings now for about five years. And a lot of the time the talk is in and around uh, herbicides and glyphosate is it good is it bad is it whatever else so I think you know when we talk about pesticides you have to think of the big picture about all the different types of chemicals that are used for their different purposes and if someone tells you it doesn't have any impact on 
doesn't actually kill the bee, but they mightn't be telling you the full part of the story. So it's important to kind of be aware of the full picture. Yeah, I think I, I saw a study on glyphosate and the gut microbe of bees that it might affect the gut microbe because they might be more closely related to the 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 targets of the glyphosate than the actual bee itself. So it, it's always that thing where, where we produce something new and wonderful and it, we test it on a few things, but when we actually release it out into the environment, that's that's a real test and the data comes back very slowly. And by that time, a lot of damage is done. So as I said in the episode, um, I, I've said this before, but the garden is a place I can control and I can control what pesticides and herbicides, whether to use them or, or not. But really, that's not the case for the rest of the world. It's not case for, for agriculture. I mean, there are times where we really have to use pesticides. Yeah, or where, well, I don't know if we have to. Um, and it's, I think, first and foremost, it's always worth asking yourself that question. Do we have to? Within mass production food systems, it's, you know, it will be argued that using pesticides is very important for food security. That's not to say it is or it isn't, but that's certainly the argument that's there. And like one way that uh, glyphosate, which we've spoken about, is used is it's applied to grain at the end of its life cycle to speed up its ripening so that it could be ready. And, you know, like that might be important if there had been a bad, I'm only kind of thinking out loud here, but that might be important for reasons to do with the weather. It might help to secure the harvest if you can get your grain ripened in time and secure that way. So that's one such example. And another area where pesticides are widely used, herbicide in particular, in this case, is in the treatment of invasive species. Well, actually plant invasive species like Japanese knotweed. And we, I know we did a piece of research in Wildwork and the report is available on our website or you can contact us if you're interested to get a copy of it. But we did a trial piece of treatment on Japanese knotweed in the Cork area and we were using Roundup to treat Japanese knotweed. Now Roundup is a brand name and actually there are different types of Roundup itself so it's not all the same kind of Roundup. In this particular one I think it's uh, its name in Ireland is called Roundup by Octavexel and this don't ask how but this is more or less approved for use in water courses so mm -hmm. that so it's meant to be that when this is applied near a water course if it gets into the water that it just breaks down within the aquatic system and this is all approved governmentally and so on so our trial was actually using that particular product on japanese knotweed in line with the most up-to-date methods that were out there so those people who use uh, this product on japanese knotweed they just or in anything else for that matter, they just use it any old way, lash it together and so on. Now that's not that's actually illegal to do that, but look, this is what goes on in, in practice often. So over the over the four years, we treated a number of sites using this particular herbicide. We used stem injection, we also used spraying, and it, it was successful in bringing the knotweed under control. Not everywhere, but certainly the, the, the issue that was there in terms of knotweed spreading through the river systems, we were working in small streams, we bought, brought the issue down to a level where it's now completely manageable. I mean, these sites will probably always have knotweed on the, in them and you may need to keep on top of them. They may need to have herbicide applied every now and again. But uh, to be fair, based on all the evidence, it's an example of where herbicide has proven to be beneficial. And I think what 
really you could see from that is how you use it, the efficiency. As you said, it's stem injection. I presume with spraying, it's probably a certain time of year and maybe just a like a certain size area as well. It's very controlled. I think that is really important when it comes to using pesticides and the positives to them. It's because it's very controlled and very efficient use of them. Would you agree? Great. Absolutely. That's a great point. And, and like on that, one of the things we learned was that in places where spraying, uh, where we did spraying, that was like a blanket spray. And not only did it, did it target the Japanese knotweed, but it killed all vegetation in that zone. So the places, any knotweed stands that were treated through spraying, they looked like just a wasteland. You know, it's just all dead vegetation. Whereas the places where we've used stem injection, there's been a uh, ground flora of native vegetation able to develop um, in, in those places. So we found that, yeah, that using stem injection, we found it to be a little bit more effective than the spraying, but it, it, was, it was great that way. That was something we didn't foresee, but something we discovered at the end of it, that it was good for allowing other vegetation to be able to establish in place of the knotweed. Like using pesticides can be good as well for spot treatment, but it's, I think it's like the time of year that you're using it, how much you're using it and how frequently as well. But there's definitely, there's pros and cons for using pesticides. And uh, maybe Kenga, you can talk a little bit about this a bit more, how we can use pesticides more effectively and more safely. So like Rachel and William have said, um, sometimes you can't, you can't help it, but you have to use herbicides and pesticides um, when, especially if you have, you know, big farms and with the, you know, population trends at the moment, it's definitely a big challenge for um, agricultural activities to produce more, like a lot more and a lot more intensively um, without, you know, degrading the environment. So there are a number of things that you can do to, you know, kind of minimize the negative effects of um, pesticides. For example, like Rachel has said, applying less but more frequently, because especially when you're spraying, if you spray a lot and then there's a rainfall event, it all seeps into the ground and into groundwater and running waters. And also when you remove vegetation, when you remove crops, make sure to do it earlier on in the season because if you uh, remove your crops right um, at the end of autumn, they mightn't have a chance to, you know, for any vegetation to grow in that space. And that leaves the soil uncovered. And in the winter, a lot of the soil goes into the running waters and again infects ecosystems there with the pesticides. Kinga, on what you're saying there, it's all, you know, it's great, wonderful advice and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's common sense really. And so all these pesticides, they've predominantly, they've come into our way of life since kind of the time of the, the world wars in Europe. And after that time, and there was there was food shortage issues, and then there was moves for mass production in agriculture, and one thing led to another, and now these things are part of life, really, where we live. But what what what's sort of happening is that people they don't use them correctly, or how they're supposed to be used. Uh, that might mean that they're not effective in the first instance, but also that they could be doing untold damage when they shouldn't be. So a thing that has come in now recently is is a directive called the Sustainable Use Directive. And anybody now, uh, people may have, you may have heard people asking, oh, you can't buy, you can't buy uh, herbicide or you can't buy Roundup in the shops anymore. You have to have a certain course done and yada, yada. But 
basically what they brought in was that there is now two different types, two different brackets uh, of pesticides. There's ones that are classed for professional use, or there's ones that are for anyone can use them. And if you go into, say, a co-op superstore or wherever may sell these chemicals, you'll see it on the labels, whether they're for professional use only or whether anyone can use them. So a lot of time with glyphosate, so if you bought a Roundup product, anyone can technically actually buy this, but whoever uses it, it's generally for professional use only. And if you wanted to buy a version of Roundup that you could use yourself, you can get one that's in a ready-made-up spray bottle for around the garden. And generally, they're weaker versions of the professional thing. So there's two distinct brackets under this, the sustainable use directive, the professional ones and the ones anyone can use. But it's quite interesting, right? Because under the sustainable use directive, in order to be a professional, you have to attend the training. So we, we did this, uh, people that work on, while we're using these products have done this training. I got to do the training course a few years ago and I found it was really good. Like, I mean, I came into it maybe with a negative attitude towards these products, you know, thinking like, oh my God, what am I doing here learning about this? Well, I was so, I came away with it so impressed because the whole thing was all about minimizing the amount you have to like it's like using the chemical is the last resort what are all these other things you can do first before it gets to the stage of using the chemical and then if you're using the chemical you use it strictly in accordance with the the label as directed you, you do the mix and then before you use it in the environment there's a whole risk assessment method that you have to follow make sure there aren't people around that the weather conditions are right and so on and if everyone was going around the place applying these chemicals in line with the sustainable use directive jesus it would be it would be make a massive difference in the first place and so for anyone that would like to learn more about it or become a professional user or just even to do the, the training course it's a really good education in um in using uh, pesticides certainly and the big one on it that you'll be glad to hear the big focus of it all is in keeping these out of the water systems now Unfortunately, I, I have to admit, when I walk around Ireland and go places, I come across places where there's drains and people that want vegetation growing in the drain in case it clogs it up, so they spray the drain full of herbicide. And I mean, that's incomplete. That goes completely against the directive, you know. But hopefully, I would say that the practices that are applied in Ireland, are some or the ways we do things have been built up over many years. You know, we just do them that way. And I would hope that the Sustainable Use Directive going forward, uh, hopefully that will lead to people being way more sensible, you know, doing thinking like you're suggesting there, Kinga, about how to use these products. So hopefully it'll be a better future that way. I think also a big problem of it is just the lack of education in the farming community. Um, and personally, I think there should be a lot more funding because, for example, what farmers can do is they can create buffer zones. You know, the edges of their fields could have like buffer zones. So all the herbicides don't get into the water systems, like you said, well, but that means that less of their land would be used to make crops and that's, that's not profitable for them. So if they had any funding in place, this could encourage farmers to do that. And it's also yeah. the kind of mentality where, why should I do it if, you know, if John down the road isn't doing it? So with more education and with more, you know, kind of local initiatives where every farmer in the region is like, yeah, we're all going to do it and we're all going to make a difference. That would definitely encourage farmers to improve their practices. 
Yeah, we, we actually went to a farm demonstration day uh, down near McCroom. There was a farmer who won a national award about a year or so ago, and there was a number of big um, agri-industry partners involved in this whole award. And he essentially did what you were saying, Kinga, that he had these buffer zones. And he did it by the book for how you're supposed to manage your chemicals on the farm. And he had buffer zones so that it wouldn't run off into the river system. And this farmer was actually so good at doing it that he was, he was probably, even though he was, he was saying, he said this himself, um, that even though he, or this was the way the story was told, is that even though he uh, didn't, he didn't farm as much of the land with the chemicals, you know, I mean, you're not talking that much of a percentage of his land mass anyway, that's left out of the unit, but that he was actually more profitable and more productive and he actually needed to, the big thing was that he was using less chemicals because they cost money to buy them and, and to apply them. He was using less, so he was making a saving that way. But it was great to see there was over 300 farmers attended this uh, open day demonstration event. And we were, uh, we were delighted to be asked to come along as well to give a demo of uh, what you could do in these areas if you set them aside and if uh, we were giving out wildflower seed packets to farmers and talking about the virtues of native Irish wildflowers. We were delighted with ourselves. <laughs> I think that's, that's both great points from, from Will and Kinga about just the way we've always done it and just not enough education for, for farm. I mean, I know farmers want to do the right thing. They want to protect their land. And if it's just always been that you spray that area, once you start getting that information out there, well, you can do something else or you know spraying causes all this other damage. You know, that's, I hope, the way to, to start changing hearts and minds. I know there's... Um, an interesting initiative in the UK, Pesticide Action Network UK, and they've got a pesticide um, free towns campaign. And I think that is fantastic. I'd love to see something like that here with tidy towns using alternatives to pesticides. So that's what we should be doing first, using these alternatives to pesticides, particularly in towns when you're around schools and children and people walking past. So like in the, in the YouTube episode, you know, uh, hand weeding and picking up slugs by hand instead of poisoning them. Yeah, it takes a little bit of work, but when a community gets involved, I think you can really do that kind of work. There's, there's a crowd that are referred to as the tidy towns generation. Yeah, that's kind of colloquial talk there now, but generally that's people who are retired and they, um, are, they, they, these people look after gardens and townscapes and so on more than anyone else in the country so Ireland is full of older retired people who are you know a lot of the time they might be part of a tidy towns group or something and they really care about their community and they're wonderful at putting making and beautifying the place they live putting out flower baskets and picking up the litter and so on but sometimes they're referred to as the tidy towns generation meaning that they're the gang that learned all their gardening stuff you know back in the 60s and 70s and and tidy towns used to get some unfair stick, you know. Well, no, actually, I think a lot of it is merited to that of you know overuse of chemicals and to being too prim and proper with the way places are managed. Okay, but there's been a big drive towards being more biodiversity friendly, being more nature friendly within tidy towns. And so, the, so the so-called tidy towners, they 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 get it. Like they understand people that are older, they they understand the argument, the need to cut down pesticide usage. Because they can also remember a, a landscape in Ireland that was healthier from longer ago. 
And what's wonderful now, right, I had a great occasion where I got to visit Dublin recently. Uh, I was invited there by Castleknock Tidy Towns. They wanted me to come and see what sort of biodiversity they had in Castleknock. And uh, they were going to get me, they, they took me on a tour to the local school and walked around in Castleknock. And they were showing me what they were up to. I couldn't believe it. Like, they were, it was just so evident. The one thing that struck me was that they weren't using any chemicals at all, you know, in the management of all the public space. And they were like dead set. They were like, yeah, we want to cut out all chemical usage. And only one place in all of Castleknock, one tiny little place around the base of one tree did I find evidence of herbicide usage. And I mean, look, I know where herbicide has been used, even if it isn't recently. You're familiar with the signs when you're looking out for that kind of thing. But I was just so impressed. So here's, you know, your so-called tidy towners who are not meant to be, you know, in the past, you know, some conservationists might accuse tidy towners of not being caring for nature. And I couldn't believe it. Like this is the first place I walked around in Ireland where the whole community, from what I could see, was no longer using chemicals and allowing grass to grow along. So great. I don't think they're going to win a prize for that, but I think they certainly should. A great credit to Castle Knock, and I was delighted to be invited there. And they didn't say they weren't using chemicals. I just discovered it on the tour. I was very impressed, and I hope they inspire many other tidy towns groups to do similar. Um, and I know that many already are. I'll openly admit that I think I underestimated tidy towns before I started work placement. Because, as you said, I, in my perception, it was that they like things very prim and proper, gardens to be kept really neat, use of chemicals. But then in the work placement podcast, um, the biodiversity one that will be coming out, we mentioned tidy towns and I actually learned a lot about them and they really are very focused on biodiversity and even climate change now and so it's really nice that you're saying that like you're seeing it really in person as well and the effects of it so yeah I'll openly admit I underestimated tidy towns and I actually want to look more into them now and see how to get involved so hopefully that way then you know the generation of tidy towns might start shifting once people actually realize how much work they do like even on the ground work with the all island pollinator plan and those kind of government schemes and non-government schemes like they're the people that are actually implementing a lot of it and putting the work in and i think that should be acknowledged as well yeah absolutely it's they're they're actually insp- they're inspiring and karen will agree with me i'm sure because we we work in this space like it's our job but these guys volunteer in this space and you would not believe the effort that they put in to managing their communities for biodiversity and and so many of the tidy towns people we we know they're all about wanting to cut out using chemicals and embracing nature and wildness in the places they live and they have a real passion and it's great to see and again they're on the front line they're showing how it can be done if you can manage a whole town by reducing pesticides we certainly can do it in our gardens very true rachel and kinga this is not to say now that myself and Karen are old and ancient, because we're not. I mean, people still call us young, right? Don't they, Karen? Call me not young for a while, anyway. anyway. <laughs> I'm sometimes called a young fella. But compared to you guys, like in college, where I'm like an old man here now. But have you, you ever seen, or maybe this still happened on the telly, but I remember from uh, years ago, there'd be ads for herbicide on the television. And it would all, I just remember these pictures of it's always dandelions evil dandelion you see the picture of this kind of cartoon figure dandelion right creeping around ah, going mad and eventually you come along with your special whatever it's called chemical 
and you spray it on him and the dandelion is killed and murdered and everything is all great because that evil, horrible dandelion is gone. My, my, I speak to my aunt who's older than me and she remembers TV adverts from back in the 60s and 70s that were like, you know, it's the same. It's all about the wonder of using these chemicals because you can kill all these horrible things that we don't want in our gardens like dandelion whatever else. Do you think, uh, my question is, do you think that there's that there's um, a worse culprit than the so-called dandelion out there. Like, is, is dandelion the thing that chemicals get used on the most, I wonder? Because it seems to be in the adverts that it's the most evil thing out there. Or, or is there something more evil than dandelion? I think just talking about adverts alone. I don't know, Kinga, if you're the same. I can't even think of an advert for use in pesticides, to be honest. No, I don't think it's really talked about that much, at least. Watch a bit, I watch, well satellite television so i get a lot of um english channels and i can't remember the last time i watched irish television but i've definitely seen that um dandelion advert like recently maybe it's not on irish television maybe it's just because we're all using netflix and disney plus where there's no Uh, ad (laughs) (laughs) now i feel really young satellite tv i don't even own a tv yeah but certainly like yeah, hopefully we'll see a, tra- a change in trends of advertisements in relation to these products as well, because we're here all advocating to not use them and our sustainable use directive and everything. It's all about like minimizing the usage of pesticides and just cutting them out full stop if you can at all. So do you guys have any um, other sort of tips and ideas of what you can use instead of reaching for the pesticide? One that I thought was actually really interesting from watching the video with the oranges I never thought of it. So then I started looking into it more and there's a lot that you can use as alternatives. And it's almost like old school is new school, bringing back the old ways of, you know, keeping pests and um, minimizing weed growth. But one that I thought was really interesting was that you can use like, is it called spent coffee? I don't drink coffee. So I think it's like after the grains have been used for coffee, you can use that for a lot of different, um, in a lot of different ways so for the slugs you can put that out in a thin line and apparently they don't really like crossing it now i don't know how effective this but i thought that was really interesting but you can also use coffee as a fertilizer so for very like how you call like hungry plants like roses and and carrots that you can very thinly put it on the ground and it breaks down really easily and apparently the worms will break it down really easy and it's very good it's very nutrient rich but the reason I brought it up was because when you were on about community and how they can all do it together, I live in Milton and a lot of the coffee shops here will leave bags of the spent coffee grinds outside in a little basket and they'll just be like free to take. So really, it doesn't really cost you anything just to go take that bag. And like, I can imagine you can go into most coffee places and say, oh, you know, I'm going to use it for this and can I take it? So very simple solutions that are very cost effective and there was a really good booklet that I found it's called the greener gardening guide to chemical free affordable gardening and it's from the EPA the environmental protection agency and it goes through loads of alternatives and like how to compost and it was was a really good read and it's also very informative but not complicated. That's really interesting about the 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 coffee in Middleton I it was only like last year a couple of months ago when I walked into a coffee shop and I asked them what they do with the coffee and they looked at me as if I had two heads and I bet now they're probably leaving out coffee bags. Well actually Karen there is a friend of ours who 
they might be a secret guest on another episode, right? But there's a friend of ours, myself and Karen, know, we won't say who it is now, but they collect coffee grinds for such purpose uh, from coffee shops in Middleton. And they the were others, doing it before it was cool. They were doing it before it was cool. And uh, one of the one of the things they use it for as well is, is the fertilizer angle of it. And it just reminds me, it's worth saying now um, when it comes up, that there's an ep- another episode of Wild Workers at Home that's closely linked with this one. And it's all on nutrient cycling. And that kind of would cover more to do with like using fertilizers or alternatives to them. And um, who knows, we might get the special guest to might get the special guest person to join yeah. us. The secret person, the secret coffee ground person might join us on that one. Uh, we'll see. Then, if we don't, I hope people won't be disappointed if um, <laughs> the secret guest isn't there. <laughs> we'll make every effort to get them on because um, yeah. you know, what they don't know about composting isn't worth knowing. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's mad. This this secret person, like, um, they, I think they are happy to do the episode. Anyway, they've said that they are, so they won't mind me saying. But at one stage, they're so hardcore into the composting that they started um, like basically farming their own worms from their compost in a system where they could eat the worms <laughs> to be ultimately excellent nutrient cyclers. And the worms were given a real uh, humane death. They were just, they went into the freezer and they didn't even know they were dead. And then, but apparently they didn't taste very nice. So I, I don't, we might find out more in the nutrient cycling episode. That person, <laughs> that person sounds like they have some stories to tell. That sounds like it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, watch that space for our our next podcast on nutrient recycling. It's going to be a good one. But we were talking just to get back to um, alternatives to to pesticides. So I'm just interested. Yes. Yeah, so coffee, that's one. Um, again, in a country where there's lots of rain, you need to have lots of coffee and keep putting it out. That's the only thing I would say about slugs. Any sort of slug barrier is something that has to deal with the rain. But it- prevention. Prevention is a big one. If you're, especially if you're designing something from scratch, that's where you can cut out nearly all the need for chemicals. So, like, uh, so far we've been speaking about herbicide a lot and how it can be used in like the greener parts of our landscape, fields and lawns and other places. But actually, hard surfaces they all have these chemicals applied to them also to prevent the weeds from growing. Going back to the episode, the hard surface that I had at my home was a gravel driveway, and it used to be, you know, it would have gravel driveways like it throughout the country are sprayed to keep them nice and pristine with gravel. But I just managed it with my lawnmower in a higher setting and allowed it to turn into a country kind of a boring job. But I didn't put that driveway in, and what I could have done is I could have put in a type of a surface that was more suitable. Like so, maybe if I paved the driveway, I know that costs more money. But if it was paved properly, it wouldn't have weeds growing up in it. So I wouldn't have a need for cutting anything with the lawnmower and I wouldn't have a need for spraying anything. And um, we have one particular project on a roundabout and it's a, it's a red brick roundabout. And all the brickwork was put in, just laid onto gravel. Now, for anyone that knows a bit about construction, you know, there's more than one way to lay brick. And one way that it can be laid is it can be set into concrete. And if you do that, then it's far more durable and weeds can't grow up through it. But the brick in this particular instance, the way that it was laid, it guaranteed that there was going to be a weed issue and that the only way you could keep it free of weeds really 
would be in using chemicals. So what I'm getting at here is that a lot of the time, the reason we have to use the chemicals is because at the design phase of whether it's our flower bed or a roundabout or a footpath or a drive, wherever, we didn't think about how we were going to maintain it. And even on the slugs, it's something as simple as, you know, people that make polytunnels or that have polytunnel systems, they'll put a skirt of concrete around the base of the polytunnel to make it difficult for the slugs to get in. And then they won't allow, they'll try to not allow slugs to ever establish within their polytunnel. So then it's far easier to manage. So stuff like that. It's all about the things you can do before it ever gets to the stage where you might need to be using chemicals. It's fair to say that a lot of time people just don't think that way. Mm. Yeah. Think actually, prevention. actually on um, discoveries and slugs we had a, an accidental discovery in my garden so one year we were growing lettuce in our garden and um, we had lots of slugs who, who ate it and we had about five I would say five different pots of the lettuce and they ate four of them and we were looking at the one and we were wondering why is why what's different about this one why haven't the slugs reached this one and we realized that just the container for the, um, uh, for the lettuce was different in that it had a very um, sharp edge because it was a plastic container and had a very sharp edge that the slugs couldn't get through. So that was the only one that survived. Oh, that's really cool. And I think another thing, especially maybe for Karen and Kinga, because you do seem to like grow a lot of veg, I think, well, yourself as well, that companion planting. Have you ever do you use that or have heard of that? where you plant um, maybe like a, uh, for example, the one I have is like carrots and onions. You plant them in rows beside each other in alterations because onions are so odorous that they kind of mask the scent of the carrots and it helps protect them then from slugs and other pests that might eat at them as well. That's very interesting. Yeah, so I don't know if that would be classified as like preventative, just the design of of your garden and of your vegetation patch if that's like a preventative method mm -hmm. yeah and and um going back in in agriculture the older systems like they still practice it today but the idea of crop rotation mm. uh, that was the thought process there as well and and uh, you know so that um pests couldn't build up within the system if you're changing the crop all the time but also little things like the you would grow a root crop first in the cycle because when you're growing the root crop they need a lot of weeding and it's kind of depleting the weeds that are in the soil and also when you harvest the root crop like I've potatoes now home and if I dig them up if there happens to be a dock or something growing in there you can be guaranteed that the whole root of the dock and everything is all going to come out when you dig up the potatoes and it's easy to harvest it then far easier than if you just set about harvesting docks you know or trying to dig them out so um in that case, the actual crop itself that you're using in the ground, it, in theory, it, it makes, it cuts out the need to have to use weed killers. Yeah. And even with that, the rotation of crops as well is much better for the soil, just on a nutrient level. So if you're having the same monoculture year after year, you're going to deplete the, the nutrients in the soil, which means you need to use more chemicals. So then if you're rotating, as you said, using different types of, of crops, then they're bringing different nutrients different water content to the soil so it's much better that way as well yeah so a lot of our issues probably stem from these huge monocultures because of course you know pests can easily build up if you've got a huge field of cabbages the cabbages whites will just get in there and breed i mean i don't i don't know how 
farming will ever change to this, but there's definitely a move towards more diverse farms and agriculture, you know, trying to get lots of different plants in, lots of different little patches, and that sort of breaks down. You don't have a big pest outbreak, and that will help reduce pests. That's certainly something I try and do in the garden, sort of like companion planting, planting flowers and things next to the vegetables, so that you do have a mix of insects there, and you're most like, hopefully likely to get a wasp coming and visiting the flowers and then finding out that there's um, cabbage whites nearby and taking them on as well. Yeah, Karen, in, in Ireland, there's kind of a movement both directions. So there are people who are getting more into more natural, like say organic type of farming or whatever it may be. And then within intensive agriculture itself, there's big movement towards, you know, monoculture cropping, you know, someone who used to have beef cattle and dairy cattle now only has dairy and or, so there is big movement towards bigger uh, monoculture systems, but there is a growing awareness of the importance of diversity, not just biodiversity, as in all the species of life on your farm holding, but in um, the diversity of what you actually grow. And it's that old saying of don't put all your eggs in the one basket. And uh, just last week on, a, on another podcast, you know, kind of thematically uh, linked with what we do in wild work there's there's a farming for nature awards and there's a, a Darina Allen from from Ballymaloo in Cork uh, did a wonderful podcast on that and she was speaking about that very thing of you know don't have all your eggs in the one basket and the more diversity that you have in your farm the better she's talked about how you know all these different things within their system your companion planting and different sort of animals that will eat the pests and if you heard uh, that podcast and listened to Darina speak was actually, I thought it was very inspirational. I would recommend anyone to take a listen to it. It gives a real good sense of the type of farm system you can create if you decide to move away from chemicals and, um, and be more diverse, have more diversity in what you do. Yeah, they were lovely podcasts. I think Donald Sheehan from Cork, his one as well, I thought was really nice because it wasn't so much focused on having diversity in the farm, it was more biodiversity in the farm. But I thought it was really nice because even when we were talking about farmers a while ago and the you know, education awareness, like I think a lot of farmers are aware and he certainly is like he knows he has his nettles, he harvests them, he leaves them grow again. He has the edging. He, he's really, really invested in it. And it's like a lot of people say farming is protecting nature. They are nature's protectors in a way. So I thought they were they were actually really nice podcasts because they're short as well. And they're just really you get a sense of what. Irish farmers are about and what they're trying to do and the move like the movement away from using chemicals and movement toward being more biodiverse and being more concerned of the environment. I remember we were, went once um, to visit this organic farm in Cork and I remember the um, the owner was telling telling us how he started back 20 years ago and he was just mocked mercilessly mercilessly for it because um, it just wasn't done organic farming and everybody was saying you're wasting money what is this we don't believe in this and he's saying that now all the farms around him are doing it and it's really becoming more of a thing and I think it kind of comes down to our perception of what like what the food that we buy should look like because like you were saying in the podcast sorry not in the podcast in the YouTube video Karen that there comes a point where we should just accept that some of the leaves will be eaten by slugs or insects or whatever and when you're out in the shop and you know your you know pepper or whatever has like mark and it's being left behind and it's going to waste and i think if we kind of moved forward with that thinking 
um, and stop thinking that our strawberries should be perfect um, and our apples should be shiny. That, that yeah, would, there's yeah. a serious amount of food wastage from just the look of food. The people don't want anything that's in any way tarnished or a bit of off color, a bit of a mark on it. So a lot of food gets wasted. It's a really good point. Yeah, that's a that's a huge pressure on the farmers, and that's 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 on us. That's something that we have to change our behavior. Yes, as consumers. Mm. Yeah, definitely, Karen. And you know, for everyone that's listening to this podcast, you mightn't all have a piece of land, you know, or a garden or something that you manage. I think there's more people that live in Ireland who don't manage green spaces than who do. But the one thing that we all have in common in this country is we all have to eat food. We don't all have to cut grass and grow vegetables and whatever, but we all have to eat food. And so if you want to make a difference in this country in terms of the amount of pesticides that are used in our landscape, you can make that decision with your wallet and in what you choose to buy. In, in Ireland, we do have an organic food industry where they don't use any pesticides in organic farming. It's not very well supported if you compare it to other countries like the UK, for instance. We have a very small little organic food industry and it could be far greater. And if people decide, like if you go to the supermarket, you've got two choices of milk. You can buy, buy organic milk, which is produced without pesticides, or you can buy the non-organic, which is produced with pesticides. And the price difference, it's not that great. You can essentially vote with your wallet and pay a little bit of a premium. It's not that much more expensive for the food we eat. A lot of people buy organic because they think it's healthier for themselves. That's fair enough. But you care about nature and the environment and you purchase organic food or food that's produced in a chemical-free way, then it is, without question, that sort of food is going to be you know, better for the environment. So there, that's how you can do it. Just use your, use your hard-earned cash. I think a lot of these organic farming as well the produce a lot of times they're they can be locally produced so not only are you supporting movement away from pesticides you're also supporting your local community and economy yeah well that was a great conversation i think we we covered a lot so i'm going to say thank you very much will thanks karen thank you rachel thanks for inviting me on it was a great chat and thank you kinga thanks it was great to be here and I think we definitely will be having you on for another podcast. So I hope you'll will join me on that one. And as I said, the link to the episode will be in the podcast description on YouTube. So please check it out 